Long before I entered the world of public policy and politics, I was a middle school and high school history teacher. And it was ultimately my love for teaching and the uniqueness of the United States of America that led me out of the classroom over 20 years ago to do the work that I do today. My number one passion then is, is really the same as it is today, education reform. I believe we can do so much better, not only for kids, but also for teachers. That's why I wrote a long time ago a short monograph called Reclaiming Public Education. And I'd like to share a version of it in this podcast. Across the nation, the school choice debate is raging. While choice is here to stay because we finally recognize that no child should be denied an opportunity to attend a safer or better school, some remain skeptical. Not talking about the knee-jerk opponents of school choice, such as the labor unions, because moral arguments and empirical evidence will never convince them. But I'm talking about the average citizen who fears that more school choice will hurt rather than improve our local public schools. This was understandable just over two decades ago, when school choice discussions were little more than intellectual exercises. But today, they are informed by overwhelmingly positive evidence from children exercising choice in thousands upon thousands of charter schools. They're also informed by hundreds of thousands of children using privately funded scholarships and by thousands more using publicly funded vouchers and education savings accounts. Still, the challenge remains to reclaim the concept of public education from those who have stolen it and upended its meaning. What once meant the education of the public through diverse means has become synonymous with the direct ownership, operation, and control of schooling by state and federal governments. It hasn't always been this way. You see, for the first 150 years of America's settlement and the first 50 to 75 years of our nation's existence, public education was delivered through independent, church-related, philanthropic, and community-sponsored schools. These schools were essentially what we call private schools today. Yet despite a lack of government-controlled schooling, the early American public was exceptionally literate and relatively well-educated. Nearly every child, including the poor, had access to some level of schooling. The major exceptions, of course, were those kept in government-sanctioned and government-protected chattel slavery. But beginning in New England in the 1800s, A wave of change spread across our young nation. States began to abandon the original model of decentralized independent schools in favor of greater state control. This takeover wasn't hostile, but rather a persistent push for ever-increasing government involvement in schooling. In 1841, Horace Mann, the leader of the government school movement in Massachusetts, made a bold promise. He said, quote, Let the common school be expanded to its capabilities. Let it be worked with the efficiency of which it is susceptible. And nine-tenths of the crimes in the penal code will become obsolete. The long catalog of human ills will be abridged, unquote. While we are still waiting for 
government to usher in man's utopia. But meanwhile, our current school system clashes with the political, economic, social, and cultural traditions of the United States to an extent unparalleled by any other American institution. Indeed, this prompted the late president of the American Federation of Teachers, Al Shanker, to say, quote, it's time to admit that public education operates like a planned economy, a bureaucratic system in which everybody's role is spelled out in advance, and there are few incentives for innovation and productivity. It's no surprise that our school system doesn't improve. It more resembles the communist economy than our own market economy, unquote. An amazing quote from someone who defended that very system. Still, most Americans cling to the idea that government must be directly involved in our children's education. In fact, some argue that without government involvement, our nation itself would be threatened. Few recognize, however, that Americans, without the help of government schooling, tamed an unsettled continent and established the freest, most prosperous nation in the history of the world. Yet the Founding Fathers clearly were educated men who believed that to remain free, America must have an educated citizenry. But this educated citizenry, which largely came to pass during their lifetimes, did not depend on government ownership or operation of schools. Unfortunately, the goal of an educated public has given way to the establishment and protection of a monolithic system of government-run schools. This is not to say all schools are failing to teach our children to read, write, and figure, but children are slipping through the cracks in even the best public schools. Despite our best intentions, no school, public, private, or religious, can be all things to all children. It's simply impossible. Yet this is precisely what the state expects. And it is precisely why we must reclaim the original concept of public education, that is, the education of the public. This promise of public education will be fulfilled only when we return to parents the right the freedom, and the ability to choose the school that best meets their children's academic, emotional, spiritual, and physical needs. And it doesn't matter whether it's a traditional public school, charter school, private religious, or even a home school. Now, many years ago, my friend, the late Andrew Colson, published a book called Market Education, An Unknown History. Andrew demonstrated for those of us who have had a rather myopic view of government-sponsored education that schooling is really not a new invention. In fact, the vast wealth of experience with schooling dates back as far as two and a half thousand years. Colson said, we cannot just pick and choose one or a few historical systems that seem to have worked and claim they will necessarily work today. Instead, he said, we should look for trends in the kinds of systems that worked well or poorly across many different cultural settings. By doing so, he said we can compare educational outcomes among similar and contemporary societies that adopted different education systems. We can also consider educational outcomes when a given society abandoned one system in favor of another. Andrew's research led to a remarkable conclusion. He found that free education markets in which parents choose their children's schools and schools compete with one another to attract and serve children, that they consistently outperform all other approaches to school governance. Andrew found five essential elements in school systems that have consistently performed well 
under widely varying social conditions. Together, these factors create the incentive that is missing in our current education system. Well, what are these five elements? They are one, choice for parents. Two, direct financial responsibility for parents. Three, freedom for educators. Four, competition among schools. And five, the profit motive for schools. Are these controversial? Absolutely. In particular, most people bristle at the idea of direct parental financial responsibility as well as the profit motive in schooling. But no substitutes exist. Colson warned, quote, far from being a policy smorgasbord from which individual elements can be casually selected or rejected based on personal taste or political expediency, education markets behave much more like fragile ecosystems if any essential element is eliminated, the entire system begins to decline, end quote. Indeed, as Andrew noted, direct parental financial responsibility has historically proven indispensable to an effective education marketplace. This makes perfect sense, actually. What people pay for, they pay attention to. And what they get for free, they become complacent about. Education is not exempt from this axiom. So if good schools are dependent on parents paying some or all of the bill, how do we ensure that all children, regardless of family income, have access to good schools? The answer is very simple. We do so through needs-based financial assistance to low-income citizens. We do this all the time. This can be done so all parents can become full participants in the education marketplace. Those who can afford to pay for their children's education would do so while those needing varying degrees of financial help would receive it. This would preserve the benefits of direct financial responsibility for the vast majority of the population, since only a fraction of parents would need to have the entire cost of their children's education paid for by others. Now, considerable debate surrounds the best way to provide such assistance. Some scholars favor an education voucher, similar to what is used in Milwaukee, Cleveland, or Florida. Others promote the spread of private scholarship organizations through tax credits, as Arizona has done since 1997 and Pennsylvania since 2001. And as of 2020, scholarship tax credits exist in 18 states. Education savings accounts adopted by five states and under consideration in many more provide parents flexible accounts to spend on a variety of educational services. With an education savings account, parents fully customize their children's education by spending funds on textbooks, tutoring services, online courses, standardized tests, educational therapies, and other approved items. Unused funds roll over from one year to the next and can ultimately be spent on post-secondary education. Vouchers, tax credit scholarships, and education savings accounts are vehicles to match families with schools that will best serve each student's unique academic needs. But perhaps the more challenging hurdle for the choice movement is the need for the profit motive in education. This notion usually invites a hailstorm of criticism from the education committee. Still, we know the profit incentive is what drives entrepreneurs to produce better products and superior services. The profit motive has provided Americans the highest quality of life the world has ever known. Conversely, the absence of the profit motive has been the chief reason top teachers and best practices have not been replicated or disseminated. 
Of course, not all for-profit endeavors are successful. But the good news for students is that schools that fail to deliver a quality product will eventually go out of business, unlike persistently failing government-run and taxpayer-financed public schools. The growth of education management organizations, private firms that manage public charter schools, also underscores the societal benefits of profit-seeking actors. Philadelphia's mastery charter schools boast many of the highest-performing schools in the district. New York City's Success Academy charter schools receive five times as many applicants as available seats. And Charter Schools USA, which serves over 70,000 children in six states, specializes in transforming chronically underperforming schools. Yet still, opponents of choice remain skeptical of market-based education because of its perceived negative social effects. While we want schools to teach children to read, write, and figure, we also want schools to foster strong and harmonious communities. A more civil society most certainly won't be achieved if we focus merely on academic outcomes. Therefore, we must consider the overall societal impact of an education marketplace. Fortunately, arguments that an education marketplace will only divide communities are red herrings. In fact, they are exactly backward. Colson found that time and again, market-based education systems have allowed diverse groups to harmoniously pursue both their shared educational goals and their unique and varied traditions. Coercion, not diversity, has set neighbor against neighbor. If parents had been allowed to choose their own schools rather than being forced to relocate if they wished to send their children elsewhere, much of the socioeconomic segregation of neighborhoods over the past several decades would never have taken place. While defenders of the current system claim government-owned and operated schools are the glue that keeps communities together, in fact, they do just the opposite. Today's public school system dissolves more bonds than it sustains. Our founding fathers wisely forbade Congress from establishing a single system of religion for all citizens. So, too, we must realize that any establishment of a single official system of education for all children inevitably leads to conflict within diverse communities. It has repeatedly done so throughout history. Market-based education, by contrast, has consistently allowed heterogeneous peoples to more harmoniously pursue their educational needs and goals. Obviously, school choice reaches far beyond education policy. Ultimately, educational freedom is at the heart and is the foundation of all freedoms that we enjoy in America. Thomas Jefferson said it best, quote, If a nation expects to be ignorant and free in a state of civilization, it expects what never was and never will be. In other words, we cannot long continue our ignorance and hope to restore or even maintain our inherent and inalienable rights. That is why the battle for school choice is so critical. The fight for educational freedom is central to the defense and extension of all of our liberties, whether they're economic, political, religious, or social. It is time that we, as parents and citizens, reclaim public education from the government bureaucracies and special interests that have stolen it from us. Only then will we be able to restore the founding values and principles that made America the freest, most prosperous nation the world has ever known.
You've been listening to Brews and Views, a production of Commonwealth Partners Chamber of Entrepreneurs. Find us on Facebook at Commonwealth Partners and follow Matt Briette at M-A-T-T-B-R-O-U-I-L-L-E-T-T-E. -T -T -E.